This episode is supported by Active Skin Repair. Active Skin Repair is a skin health company helping people heal with natural, non-toxic, medical-grade ingredients. I just randomly... Vinny was having a toe skin irritation issue and he ended up having this like skin that was really irritating him and it was getting kind of like icky and you know like when kids start to get like little scabs and scratches and then they want to pick at it and it was getting worse and so active skin repair showed up on my doorstep as a result of the sponsorship and I got to put it to use immediately and I got the ointment formula or the like ointment formulation and then also the spray and the spray was perfect so Vinny does not like ointmenty creamy lotiony things on his body but I was able to get out the spray literally took it out of the packaging the day it arrived put it on his toe before he went to bed and the next morning he was like mom my toe's all better. It was literally like this super amazing cure that helped his toes so quickly. So you can use active skin repair on a wide range of skin issues, including cuts, scrapes, burns, sunburns, rashes, other types of skin damage. It's totally safe, non-toxic, suitable on all types of skin, even parts of the body where you might have rosacea or eczema or have acne prone skin. This is also safe for the youngest members of your family up to the oldest. So now you have one simple solution for your family's skin health needs. With over 500 thousand happy customers and thousands of five-star reviews and super safe and clean ingredients active skin repair is something that you want to have on hand for your family so to get your own active skin repair go to activeskinrepair.com to learn more about active skin repair and get 20 percent off your order when you use the code shameless that's activeskinrepair.com use the code shameless for 20 percent off your order activeskinrepair.com code shameless This is the Shameless Mom Academy, episode 364. Show notes for this episode, including any links mentioned in the episode, as well as any discount codes from our sponsors, can be found by going to shamelessmom.com and clicking on episode 364. Welcome to the Shameless Mom Academy. I'm your host, Sarah Dean. I'm here to give you and other passionate, driven, unapologetic moms tools, resources, and a little bit of humor to help you lead more positive, powerful, and purposeful lives every damn day. One of the best things about the Shameless Mom Academy is our community. So be sure to join us in our free private Facebook group to connect with other shameless moms just like you. You can find us over at shamelessmom.com forward slash Facebook. All right, let's dive into today's episode. Darcy Lockman is a journalist turned clinical psychologist and the author of All the Rage, Mothers and Fathers and the Myth of Equal Partnership. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times and the Washington Post, among others. Her first book, Brooklyn Zoo, chronicled the year she spent working on the psychiatric ward of a city hospital. She currently practices in New York City, where she lives with her husband and daughters. I've invested a lot of time in the recent months learning about building equitable relationships As someone who likes to take on all the things, I know what it's like to be the doer and the knower and the gatekeeper of everything in the family. It's super exhausting and feels really unfair and often feels like an unnecessary burden that we could maybe improve drastically, but I don't always feel like women have the tools to do this. And so I was really excited to have Darcy come in and talk about equitable relationships because I feel like this is something that's coming more and more to the forefront very necessarily so like it is so beyond time. And I feel like we have a knowledge around we want things to be more equitable, but we don't always know how to approach that. And we don't necessarily know how to let go being the gatekeeper and the doer and the knower of all the things in the family. So I could not be more excited to invite you into this conversation with Darcy and me. Listen in to hear Darcy share what quote unquote good dads get away with, 
societal, multi-generational indoctrination of gender roles, even among progressive couples, the truth about maternal gatekeeping and the potential damage around it, the power of using your anger in adaptive ways to have a more equitable relationship, the research-proven struggles and burdens of the mental load of motherhood, especially in the first four years, and strategies to build a more equitable partnership with your partner. This is an eye-opening episode. I know you're going to learn something. I can't wait for you to like take some notes and get ready to implement and have some conversations at home. So with all that said, let's go ahead and dive in with Darcy Lockman. Darcy Lockman, welcome to the Shameless Mom Academy. I'm really happy to have you here today. Thank you, Sarah. I'm so happy to be here. This is going to be a good conversation. So I'm going to preface this and let you know that we've been talking about equity in marriage and partnership in my private community over at my membership community over at Momentum Mamas. So I feel like this is really well-timed. Like this is a hot topic already among my audience. So I'm excited to dive in. I'm so glad. Me too. It's a hot topic among the people I know as well. Yeah. Even before I wrote the book, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us a little bit more about the dynamics of your personal and professional life beyond your bio and what you're most excited about right now. So let's see. So I'm a therapist. I work in New York City in private practice. I see individuals and couples and I live with my family in Queens and I do yoga and I run and I, I don't know, I see my friends as much as possible. I guess that's the stuff beyond my bio. I'm most excited right now about talking about this book because mm. writing it was so fun and I learned so much and I love sharing the stuff that I learned with people and hearing people's reactions. So that's been a really fun part of my summer because it just came out in May. But then I'm also excited for a vacation that we're taking at the end of the summer because my husband and I are taking two weeks off of work at the end of August, which we've never done before. We're both self-employed. And usually we just take like 10 a week or 10 days. And this summer we were like, let's take the whole two weeks. And it used to be a thing that therapists would take all of August off. That's like the sort of tale of the New York City therapist. But I don't, frankly, I don't know how anyone affords that anymore. Right. That's the thing. You're like, it must be nice. (laughs) I know. I know. Well, I think that it used to be people didn't have like hundreds of thousand dollars of student loans that Um, they were working to pay off. So I think maybe they had a little more leeway, but we're taking two full weeks and going to DC and then also to Michigan to see my family. So I'm really looking forward to that. Fun. So fun. I know a bunch of life coaches and just people who are kind of in my orbit in that capacity who take the month of December off. Um, Oh yeah, yeah. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like this is my goal. Like this is my new life goal is to how can I take December off or at least like a solid two to three weeks. They do that though, because all of their clients are out of town. Right. That's the thing. So so just throw that out there because that's kind of the therapist thing too. I think last week in the third week of August, I had so many people away that it was like, oh, why am I even here? This right. is like, I could probably not do this just as easily. Exactly. And December would make sense in the same way. Totally, totally. Okay, so I want to dig into this content here. So you recently had an article go viral called What Good Dads Get Away With. So tell us about the article, why you wrote it, what was at the crux of the piece, and then how the internet responded. Yeah. So I wrote the piece in conjunction with the publication of the book. And that's what often happens when people have nonfiction books coming out is that they pitch articles. We pitch articles to try to, you know, get the word out about the book. Mm. So I pitched this piece to the New York Times and that what they gave it a great headline. That wasn't my work. Oh, interesting. Um, oh, I would, I would have totally assumed that that was your. Yeah, headline. no, my headline was much worse. Of course <laughs> I called it. 
successful male resistance because that's a chapter title of the book so one of the chapters in the book is about you know how men are not kind of coming to the table in the same way women are when it comes to child care and what's going on with that. So the article is kind of an excerpt from that chapter. It's a lot of the same information. And, you know, I'm working with the editor of the New York Times who wanted the piece. And I assumed it was going to run like online because I've written stuff for them before and other places where it just runs online and nobody really notices it. And that's all well and good. They didn't tell me it was going to be in the print edition because people don't make those distinctions all the time. So then a friend of mine who works there, actually, I was like, hey, can you tell me, like, where is this actually going to be? I think I felt shy to ask my editor because I didn't want to, like, imply that online wasn't going to be as good. And my friend, like, a couple days before was like, oh, it's great. It's running in Weekend Review. I was like, oh, awesome. So it went up online on Saturday and, like, I'm not a big social media person, but like suddenly I'm seeing it all over Twitter and the comments that Saturday before the paper even came out on Sunday were just like comment after comment after comment. And I was working on some other pieces. (laughs) So I was actually working that weekend and trying to get stuff done. And it was just really like seeing people's response was pretty overwhelming. I was like, wow, this really hit a nerve. This is great. And it's always both surprising and not. And I was kind of like, I flashed back to when my proposal had gone out. And, you know, the proposal went out in 2016. So it was two and a half years, basically, between selling the proposal and publication date. And when the proposal went out, my agent and I got a similar reaction, but, you know, limited to editors because that's who got the proposal. But there was like this outpouring of interest and we were like, wow, we hit a nerve. But then we kind of forgot, right? (laughs) So two and a half years years later, it was like, oh, right. That's right. That is, yeah. So (laughs) it was like, yeah, exactly. So it was pretty exciting. And then, you know, it's, I guess, just because of Twitter, it's fun to see like who's reading what you wrote. Like Candace Bushnell retweeted my article. I was like, oh my God, Candace Bushnell retweeted my article. So it was fun. And reading the comments was fun. I mean, it was really great to hear from women who were like, right on, I feel seen. This is my life. And I've been getting a lot of responses like that from the book as well. And interestingly, I also heard from men who were like, you know what, everyone's always telling me what a great dad I am, but I know in the back of my mind that my wife does way more and doesn't get the same kind of praise. And this really puts a finger on it. And I'm going to talk to her about this and really see what we can do. So it was really refreshing and encouraging to hear from men who read it as well, who said, yeah, you know, I see this and I don't want to be this. Yeah. So was there any back, were all the comments in support or was there? No. Oh my God, of course not. (laughs) I was going to say like the comments, they're not all supportive. Amazing. No. I mean, people, you know, I think there's the predictable internet thing where people are like, you should be grateful for what you have. And what are you talking about? I do so much. I got numerous emails from men detailing for me how much yard work they do. (laughs) Stuff like that. I actually, there was a a woman who wrote an article, an op-ed, I think, for the, I believe it was the Federalist, which is Megan McCain's husband's website. It's kind of a conservative website. And she wrote this article called like, women stop criticizing your husbands publicly. And I saw the headline because someone reposted it on Twitter. And I was like, Oh, that's funny. And then I was like, Oh, my God, I bet this is about me. And Um, I mean, it was it was I clicked on it. It was about my piece and how it was like, so embarrassing that I had criticized my husband publicly. So there, you know, there were stuff like that, too. But it was much more like people kind of saying, yeah, this is an experience a lot of us are having that isn't really working in our relationships. So were you able to just roll with like a piece written about your article? Or was that jolting? 
Yeah, no, it was jolting, actually. It was funny because I was lying in bed on my phone with my husband reading stuff. And this writer that I follow, who I really like, Jill Filipovic, had retweeted the article. And her comment on it was really funny. And she's like a feminist writer. So her comment was like, yes, women, you should just keep your mouth shut and keep doing all the labor you've been doing for the past hundreds of years. <laughs> that was like so her awesome. comment. So I read that. I laughed out loud. And then I looked at the article. And then I had this oh my God moment and clicked on it and saw my name. So that was a little jarring Yeah, because I'm not used to seeing myself talked about in any context. So that was a little jarring, but mostly it was just, you know, I knew while I was writing the book that there would probably be some amount of negative reaction to it. So I think I was kind of like, you know, whatever, this is really something that I think is important that I feel like women could really stand to hear and men as well. And I'm glad I did it. And of course, you know, not everybody's ever going to like or agree with anything. So that's okay. right, right. This episode is supported by a podcast I want to share with you called Understood Explains. So this is, show is about navigating ADHD, dyslexia, and other learning and thinking differences, which can be so confusing. And so every uh, season of the show is around a different theme. So there's a season on special education, there's a season on ADHD diagnosis for adults, and the current season is all about IEPs. I love this podcast because the episodes are 10 to 15 minutes long. So if you are short on time or short on focus, you can take this content in super quickly, easily. It's very digestible. And the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert, Juliana Utube. So Juliana talks all about how to navigate educational plans, IEPs. She talks about the differences between IEPs and 504 plans. She really breaks things down in a really clear and simple way so that you have some of those questions that you might be thinking around, like, does this pertain to my child? Is this something I need to be looking into? Like, where do we go from here? Where do I go if I have questions? Juliana has you covered. She explains so many different things and so many different little pieces and nuance of IEPs and special education and different things on Understood Explains. So I want you to go check it out wherever you're listening to this podcast. You can go listen to Understood Explains. Just go into your podcast app, do a search for Understood Explains, and it will pop right up. Click on it, pick your episode, and get the answers that you've been looking for and the support that you need around different learning differences and differences in school. This episode is supported by AquaTrue. Having clean, safe water is the last thing you want to worry about. But unfortunately, according to extensive research by the Environmental Working Group, three out of four, yes, three out of four homes in America have harmful contaminants in their tap water. So that's why you got to check out AquaTrue. AquaTrue purifiers have a four-stage reverse osmosis purification process. And their countertop purifiers, which is what we have, take no installation or plumbing, and they remove 15 times more contaminants than ordinary pitcher filters. And are specifically designed to combat chemicals like PFAS, which can lead to potentially adverse health effects like cancer, endocrine system disruption, and liver toxicity, which is part of what makes AquaTrue so special, unique, and important in terms of how they are able to filter water. They also have water purifiers to fit every type of home. So like the installation-free countertop purifier that we have at our house to higher capacity under sink options. They even have Wi-Fi connected purifiers and mineral boost options. So I'm so excited about our new AquaTrue. And here's the thing. I swear it's like a gentle reminder to actually drink more water every time you walk into your kitchen. So we are drinking more water now and also more clean water. So more water that is more clean. It feels like a double win. I'm feeling pretty impressed with us. I feel like sink water, tap water becomes invisible at a certain point. And when I see the purifier on my counter, it's like many time a day reminder to like keep drinking, keep drinking. So I want you to check out AquaTrue for yourself and for your family. AquaTrue comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee and that makes it a great gift as well. Today, my listeners 
listeners can receive 20% off any AquaTrue purifier when you go to AquaTrue.com. That's A-Q-U-A-T-R-U.com and enter the code SHAMELESS at checkout. That's 20% off any AquaTrue purifier when you go to AquaTrue.com and use the code SHAMELESS, S-H-A-M-E-L-E-S-S, AquaTrue.com code SHAMELESS. So talk about how you came to write the book, All the Rage, and the research around it and what you learned. So I came to write the book because of a personal experience I had as a woman and a mother. I was really surprised when I had kids how much of the work of taking care of the kids fell to me. My husband and I are totally egalitarian and progressive, and there was never any idea that I would be a stay-at-home mother. It was neither logistically possible nor desirable for me. My husband and I met in a doctoral program. We're both therapists. You know, there was like, we just, we weren't ever planning like a 1950s kind of traditional life. So when everything kind of started defaulting to me with knowing about the kids and their schedules and their needs... It really was frustrating and it was hard with my first daughter and we would kind of fight about it. But then when my second came along, I was just really tired and overwhelmed, as was he. But I was kind of carrying the bulk of the load and I saw the women around me in the same situation, you know, working mothers who had never imagined that they were going to be, you know, bearing most of the load were. And every day I would ask myself, why are we living this way? And it became this really burning question. And finally, I thought, I need answers to this question and I'm going to look for them. Mm -hmm. I had started out after college as a magazine writer. So I kind of knew how to be a reporter. And I had you know, gone to a doctoral program in psychology. So I knew how to research and look for research. So I thought, okay, I'm going to really, really do this. So once I started digging in, I was amazed at how much research there was. I was not particularly familiar with family studies in the field of sociology, but they have quantified just about every measure of household labor you can think of. So there was just a ton of data. And then, you know, other stuff as well that's like, that's really related. I looked at primatology and neuroscience and biology and gender studies and child studies, all sorts of stuff. So I just really combined like every kind of academic field that had anything to say about this to figure out why men and women who consider themselves progressive in the 21st century are still living as if it were the 1950s behind closed doors. And after pooling all of the research, what was the impact on your relationship? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Well, let's see. I think that it's very difficult once patterns are established to start to do things differently. And part of the reason is that there is a real snowball effect in learning to do all of the things that are involved in managing your kids' lives. So I don't mean to be pessimistic for those who are already kind of in this, but it is much easier to start from the get-go with addressing Mm -hmm. this stuff because they're, you know, parenting is learned. It's not innate. And this is true for men and women both. And when one parent is doing a lot of the learning in the first years and the other parent isn't, there's a real knowledge gap that makes it hard to catch up. But my husband and I both became much more attentive to the ways we were taking it for granted that I was in charge of everything. Mm -hmm. He actually, after reading the book, 
paid attention in new ways that were really useful. And I got better at catching myself in trying to kind of relieve him of burdens, which, you know, women I spoke to for the book talked about, and I know I do. There's a philosopher named Kate Mann, and she has a book called Down Girl, and it's about misogyny, but she coined the term empathy, kind of an outsized sympathy for male people around Mm. what they have to go through. So we see that kind of rather dramatically in public cases like Brock Turner, the swimmer who who sexually assaulted the girl, but the judge was like, well, we don't want to ruin his life. You Mm. know, we're not going to punish him too much. That's That would be one example of empathy. But women also play that out in their relationships. And I know I would, like there would be something that was hard to arrange in our schedules with the kids and we'd talk about it and I'd be like oh well I'll just take it on like there Mm -hmm. was this feeling that the burdens should be on me and I'm not talking about gestating or breastfeeding which are certainly burdens that are are going to be on women but that's where the biological split kind of ends right Right. but we were going on as if it was still my job and then I was kind of railing against it so you know we've both gotten better at stopping that we still do it so you know, clearly, because I was writing this, there was a lot more awareness. And when we would fight about this stuff, my husband would say to me, put it in your book. <laughs> and <laughs> But now we can't say that anymore because I'm done writing it. We put it um, in book two. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. The sequel. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, you're so on target with everything. And it's funny because I just got done reading. Have you familiar with Tiffany Dufu's book, Drop the Ball? Yes. In fact, when I finished writing, my editor said to me, hey, I want you to read Drop the Ball because I think that belongs in here. And I was like, you know what? I can't read one more book because I'm never going to finish this one (laughs) if I do that. So yes, I have heard of it. No, I have not read it. So it's really interesting. And she talks about all-in partnerships and how you really can get to like a 50-50 partnership. But I was thinking about when, you know, the things that default onto a woman or when a woman is just like, Oh, it's just easier to take it on. So, you know, I mean, we actually have a good example of this next week I'm traveling and it's summer camp land, which is like a whole disaster of things. And so I'm traveling next week and my husband has to be at this all day work thing. And he's like, I don't know if I can be done with my work thing by the time summer camp is over on that day. And so I immediately feel like, Oh, this is my problem. Because yes, right. but then I'm like, wait, why is it my problem yes. though? Why do I have to solve the problem? Because my travel was booked like months ago and yes. you're now adding something to the calendar. Yet I'm the person who immediately has this like pit in my stomach around like, oh shoot, like how are we going to figure this out? Okay. Give me a minute. Like, let me freeze my life and try to figure this out. And he's very right. like, I'm sure we'll figure it out. I'm like, well, yeah. And not that he wouldn't figure it out if I put it on him, but his confidence and like being so lackadaisical about it. I'm like, what do you mean we'll figure it out? Like we don't have a backlog of people who can pick our child up at 4 p.m. Yeah. So now he's taking our son to his work event. (laughs) Great. But you just nailed it. I do the same thing. This was what I would do in my head. If I was taking my kids out of town, it was my job to pack for them because I was the one who was taking them away. Mm -hmm. If my husband was taking my kids out of town, it was my job to pack for them because he was giving me a break by taking them away. So somehow in my head, the responsibility always justifiably landed on me in exactly the way that you're talking about. I was actually speaking to a woman yesterday who told me that she said to her husband, I said to him, you know, if you have a work arrangement or whatever that interferes on one of your days to be with the kids, it is your job to find backup childcare. And I thought, oh, that's so, in some ways it's like, that's so obvious. But I think this thing that women do where exactly what you and I are just saying, like it 
kind of leaves our husbands like, you know, hey, free to party. And like, why wouldn't right. they? Like right. they just then adopt those assumptions as well. And maybe they already had them because we do in our in our culture, obviously, kind of rely on women to do a lot of the shit work, be it at home or at work. Right. There are actually studies of the workplace that show that the same thing plays out in offices. Oh, totally. Yeah. I have a woman in my community who talked about dividing up all the labor at home. And she's like, yeah, I feel really, really good. We got to this like kind of 50-50 division of labor in our household. And then she's like, but the interesting thing is, it doesn't feel less burdensome to me because I make sure that when my husband is doing his list for the week of you know, chores, et cetera, around the house. She's like, I make sure I take the kids out of the house to get, give him space to do that. <laughs> exactly. But then when it's time for me to do my chores, I'm doing them with the kids underfoot. Yes, so she's like, right. I'm still doing all the childcare, uh, like, yeah. so he can have some time to vacuum by himself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yay, what, he's vacuuming. Yeah, right. I know exactly. One of the things, one of the women that I interviewed said to me was, you know, I have friends whose husbands are stay-at-home dads but when those friends get home from work they take all the burden off of him yes. and it does not work the same with my stay-at-home mom friends the fathers do not come home and totally take over so she can relax right. she's like the women who work outside the home and support their husbands financially never get a break because they come home and take over yes. so you know there really is something about the way that we are raised as girls and as boys <laughs> that leaves us and i like the words of sociology because they're so concise mm -hmm. that leaves us feeling either more communal or more agentic based on our gender and you know which is which right right yeah clearly yeah, yeah. so i also want to tie in and tiffany dufu talks about this in her book i want to tie in that we know that women are having children later in life and often at the peak of their career so it used to be like if you had children when you were you know 24 you weren't necessarily putting a big career on hold or walking away from something or choosing family over career because you hadn't built the career out yet. And so now women are having babies much later in life. And so they're at these, you know, kind of peak phases in their career or the opportunity for the phase of peak opportunities. And so we find ourselves in a place of I'm at the point where I have the most opportunity professionally. And it's like my last chance to have kids if I'm going to do it. And how do I take all of that on? Because that's a lot. <laughs> and so then that's where I think the choice becomes. And this is why we see less women in boardrooms is because you're like, well, at the peak of my career, I'm going to decide to not go for the promotion or put things on pause or take some time off or yeah. what have you. So what did you find for that in your research? Well, you know, it's interesting because there's certainly no perfect answer and every choice involves giving up some things. Right. But to have a partner who is as all in with child rearing as you are does allow you a little bit more freedom. And it's interesting because there was this article that I guess it, you couldn't say it went viral because I think it was pre-internet, but there was an article that got a lot of attention maybe 10 years ago about the opt-out generation. And it was a New York Times magazine article about women who had high-powered jobs and went to really impressive schools, but then, but really they were just opting out to have kids. One of the interesting things about the article in retrospect is that the husbands of all of these women said to them, whatever you decide, I'll support you. And what they meant was, if you decide to keep working, that's fine with me. And if you decide to stay home, that's fine with me too. But what was left out of those conversations was, if you decide to keep working, I will make adjustments to my work life. So we're both kind of cutting back a little at work so that we can both be supported at home. Right. So, you know, this idea of women being able to do both things with some, I guess, success and joy and feelings of achievement really involves having a partner who is doing that too. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's definitely something that is starting to come up more often in my household where we have to adjust for that. And luckily my husband has a job where he does have a little bit of flexibility around schedule, but it does come down to like, if I'm traveling next week, you know, can you be done at three o'clock? Which there definitely have been times in his life where he would have been like, no. So then it comes down to like, how are we managing this? And back to my earlier point that it is on the woman to figure out how to manage it. It seems like, like, I don't think a lot of husbands are like, I really want you to go after this career. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to talk to my boss and see if I can be done <laughs> in time for school pickup every day. So yeah. that you can be in board meetings until 6 PM. How's right. that sound? Right. So it's like, but we why, can do but it, but we aren't have to there, plan right? right? Why aren't there more partnerships like that? I mean, clearly because of male privilege and the expectations around who's going to go harder at work. Um, Why aren't there as many men as women offering that up as a solution? Yeah. Yeah. It's a hard thing. And it's interesting because I know my husband tries to be really aware and helpful and supportive. And when I point things out, he's like, yes, totally. Like he really does, I feel like make an effort. So I don't want to come across like I'm bashing him, but yes, like I have to think of all the things. <laughs> yeah. Well, the mental load. That's, yes, a big, it's totally that's such a big part of the work. Right. And it's so hard. It can be so hard to quantify. And it often leaves women really frustrated and men's kind of scratching their heads. Like, what do you mean you're doing a lot? I'm doing a lot too. Right. Right. That is a whole nother. And let's talk a little bit about that, that the difference between having, so even if there's a 50-50 split of household management and childcare and like everyone has room to grow their careers, someone still has to be responsible for like keeping track of all the things. Yeah, that's such a hard one. I mean, in a way, like that can be divided up too. Yes, it it can. Right. So the couples I found who'd had the most success in achieving a division of labor that felt equitable and comfortable for both spouses were on this stuff, like constantly. It takes such a concerted effort to live in a way where everything doesn't default to the mother because of Mm -hmm. all these cultural expectations and patriarchy and society and all this stuff. So you really do have to be paying kind of close attention Yeah. Yeah. It's so much work. I mean, I read this book called Equally Shared Parenting by Mark and Amy Bashan, and they were a couple who had both decided before they had kids that they would kind of work part time so they could raise their kids really together. And they met other people who were doing this and they were so excited by the way they were living and saw that it wasn't mostly what was happening around them that they decided to write this book. So they have a lot of interviews with couples in the book who are doing this. And there was this one couple that left a lasting impression on me because what they told the writers of the book was, you know, our main goal when we started out was we mostly just wanted to be equals. And that phrase just stuck with me because that was really what it takes. We mostly just wanted to be equals. You know, this thing that a lot of us take for granted and just take as a given, as my husband and I did, that we would be equals. We didn't understand that that would involve some amount of work. And this couple really understood that and made that their primary goal. And I thought, oh my God, is that what it takes? And as I did my research, I just realized, yes, that is what it takes to kind of like counterbalance the sexism that's so baked in to our romantic relationships that we don't want to know is there because who wants to know that's there? Right, right. Yeah. And then when you talk about the energy required to make this a goal and follow through with it and make it really happen, then you're like, never mind. I'll just figure out all the things. (laughs) I think that's what I decided. I'm like, fine. I'll just empty the dishwasher (laughs) while I'm making the lunch, while I'm calling the babysitter for tomorrow. It's fine. That's easier than having a big conversation about the whole thing. I know. But then how angry are you later? I mean, I I can only speak for myself and all the women I interviewed who were like enraged. Right. Yes. Yeah. And I find that it's so for me, I guess it's like a step by step process. And I will say 
I'm in a very, you know, so we only have one child. That's not totally by choice. We had a lot of infertility stuff. So that was a limitation for us. But I also think I'm in a very privileged position because of that, because we now have a almost seven-year-old who is really independent yeah. and really easy. And so yeah. when he was really little, I was much more defensive and snippy about my role in things because I was just tired and exhausted and felt like I was like running on fumes a lot of the time. And I don't feel like that to the same extent in terms yeah. of how needy yeah. he is. So yeah. I think about like people who have like a one-year-old and a three-year-old right. and they're like, really like, we're going to have a family meeting every week to, to figure out like yep. delineation of chores. I'd rather just do it because I'm already tired and cranky. I'm just going to keep being tired and cranky. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I think the age thing is so significant. I think also having one child, but yeah. I know when I started thinking about the book, my kids were two and five and now they're six and nine mm. and life is so much easier. Yeah. And people have asked me like you have like, well, how is your relationship changed since you worked on this? And I think, you know, it has because of my husband and I having this greater understanding because of all the research that I did. But I think part of it too is just my kids are at easy ages yeah. where I'm not like literally, you know, and not literally drained all of the time in caring for them. So I think that is part. And there's research that shows that like women of children under four report the greatest feelings of injustice in oh, their relationships. Totally. Yeah. Totally. That makes a yeah. lot of sense. What I started, I think I started to say it early and I got sidetracked with my one child thing, but I think something that I found that has been helpful is that I know I have a partner who wants to be conscientious. And so I am kind of consistently trying to like giving him opportunities to step up, but yeah. then also doing it in a way where he can take responsibility for something and I'm not constantly checking on him, which yeah. it is fully in my nature to check on anyone who I've given a task to. Like, it's not just in my marriage, but yeah. like to trust that someone's going to follow something through to the level of perfectionism that I would prefer is it's very hard for me <laughs> to be like, yeah. you do that yeah. thing. And I mean, even like I joke about loading the dishwasher and like, I can't watch him do it. Cause I'm like, Oh my God, what, like that's not the best way. And yeah. you can't put the big pots on the bottom because then you can't fit anything else. And then it's a waste of water. It's a waste of space. It's a waste of yeah. energy. Like you're killing the earth. Yeah. And so I have to be like, he's going to do the dishes and I'm going to leave the kitchen and it doesn't matter if a little more water is used. And <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's so important. I mean, that's one thing, but then I spoke to a lot of women who were like, you know, I try to take things off my plate by giving them to my husband, but it doesn't really take them off my plate. Cause I know from experience that he's often not going to do it. So I'm always reminding him. So even if he does wind up doing it, you know, there's a 50, 50 shot. So I can't ever be sure. So I think, you know, there are a couple issues in what you're saying. One is about some something that's called maternal gatekeeping. There are all these great names in the literature, right? And that is when women kind of intervene to tell their partners they're doing something wrong. You know, you're changing the diapers wrong. You're putting their clothes away in the wrong drawer, whatever that is. And I think men, when they're being defensive, will talk about that as a reason why they don't do as much as they might. And, you know, there's research on like who's most vulnerable to maternal gatekeeping. But there's also the fact that men will sometimes kind of use like an inadequate performance to get out of doing things. This is another thing that's in the literature. So there's a fine line between maternal gatekeeping and I can't remember what the term for it is called when men do stuff badly in order to get out of doing it next time. But there is a term for that in the social sciences. Oh, um, something incompetence, like 
forced incompetence or something like that. Intentional incompetence. Intentional incompetence. It's something like that. Yeah. Even if it's not like totally consciously intentional. So, you know, it can be hard if you have a history of your partner not following through to really kind of go forward without that thing kind of remaining on your list. That's what I heard from women. Yeah. So I think there's this part of equity that has to be that when a woman asks a male partner to do something that we're going to assume that they are responsible and competent adults and that they're going to do it their best and then give them the space to do that and not go and try to be the gatekeeper because that's actually offensive and minimizing their role and minimizing their potential. But that's also really hard. And then if you see that the person is like intentionally being incompetent, then to have a conversation around, you know, it looks like you're not doing this that well. I don't know. You'd have to say it in a gentle way. And, yeah. and the, but this is the whole thing, like trying to be gentle around, like trying to be gentle, trying to give them the space to do things. And really, it's like if we could just all be real grown ups, right? Be like, if you say you're going to do something, I'm going to hold you to your word and I'm going to assume that you're going to do your very best. And yeah. if you show me otherwise, I'm going to be really disappointed in you because I think you're a competent, grown ass man. And I'm going to expect you to uphold yeah. your end of the deal. There have to be shared and agreed upon standards. You know, I spoke to women who said, you know, my husband, if I want my kids to not eat hamburger helper, I have to be the one that cooks. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, really? Is that the way it has to go? Right. And I think it's so easy to land there. I spoke to this sociologist named Michael Kimmel, who does a lot of gender stuff. And he told me that men would say to him, you know, I'm watching the baseball game and my wife comes in and says, well, at least you could vacuum. So I I vacuum while I watch the game. And then she comes in and said, I says, you know, I didn't do a a good enough job. So I tell her, well, you're just going to have to do it then. And I kind of thought, you know, my gut reaction was, well, yeah, if she's like not satisfied with what you're doing, I guess she just has to do it herself. And that I think that's so like out there somehow that we kind of do that. But Michael Kimmel's response to these men was, you know, if you were at work and your colleagues said to you, hey, this report really needs some changes and you didn't do a good enough job, would your response to them be, well, you're just going to have to do all the reports from now on then? You know, and when you put it in that context, it's ridiculous. So really, like, what is a marriage? What is a partnership? And it probably needs to involve two people saying, you know, what are our like, what's the lowest common denominator for what? what is okay for the kids to eat. And let's agree on that so that we can both do the cooking and know that at least that standard is going to be met. So there's this way that I think I'm going to say men have, because this is usually the setup that men sometimes have with their wives, at least from the people I interviewed and other research that I read of men saying, well, you know, I guess you're just going to have to do it yourself if I'm not doing it good enough. That I guess is well and good if you, you know, but how do you want to live in your relationship? Is that the standard you want to set for your marriage? Probably not. Right. And you know, that can go both ways. And I'll use an example that I've shared on the show before, but when my son was really little, he was like two months old. My husband kind of got on my case about paper piles on the dining room table, which at the time I was primarily working from the dining room table. So I had all this stuff there. He actually said it fairly gently. He was like, hey, you know, maybe like sometime this weekend you could pick up paper piles. And I like lost my mind. And I was like, you don't understand. Like, I'm trying to keep a baby alive. I'm trying to run a business. Like, if you expect anything more than me, then like we should just get divorced right now. Like I had this very extreme reaction. Like, how dare you ask me to clean up my paper piles when I am trying to nurse a baby around the clock? Yeah. Among other things. So we ended up having this huge, like the biggest fight we've ever had about it. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and six one since that matters. 
And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. And his whole you know, mentality was like, we live in a community in this house and uh-huh. you are like, this is community space. This is not yeah, your private yeah. space. So if you choose to work at the dining room table instead of your office space, which I did have an office, <laughs> he was <laughs> oh, like, man. you are like intruding into the community space and it gives me anxiety. And it took me a long time to see his side of that conversation because huh. I could only see like him kicking me when I was already down. Yeah. But in hindsight, I was like, that's a really reasonable ask. Yeah. But I was like, well, you should just get divorced right now. Like I just could not hear it. (laughs) I will not give up these piles. Right. Right. Like it was, Uh, I was so indignant about it. But so there is this, I absolutely agree around this, like mutual respect around expectations and agreed upon standards. How many piles are allowed on the table? What's comfortable for both of us. Right. And having an open dialogue about that in places where you're not going to be defensive. And I think this has to happen then when you're not in the heat of the moment. So it can't, oh, for be, sure. it can't be when you walk in and see that the kids had hamburger helper for the third night in a row. Yeah, it has yeah. to be like on date night when you've had a drink and you're like having fun. And then you're like, <laughs> so about the hamburger helper. <laughs> Maybe not on date night, but yeah, I agree. Not when tempers are, but like in a light their... where there's a little bit of, you can create brevity around it and there's not. Yeah. Yeah. yeah yes. That, that sounds good to me. So like, I'm curious, any other thoughts on how we can go about fixing and evolving gender division of labor? Yeah. Well, I mean, I kind of, I think it's a really entrenched problem because we live in a world that values, values the desires, preferences, ambitions, and comforts of men above women. Mm -hmm. And that is reinforced and around us every day of our lives for our whole lives, right? I mean, I have these experiences with my daughters where I just, it like really sinks in. And some of them are in the book. I mean, they're so mundane. Like my daughter, when she was in preschool, my younger daughter was learning about the presidents on the coins. Maybe they were learning about math through money, but she was asking me who all these men were. And like, clearly 
they're all men. So like, what do you kind of take in around you every day? Men are more important. There was a tweet I saw while I was writing the book that I included in the book. This um, guy wrote that he was with his daughter and she was asking about the statues in some park that they were in. And, and she says, why are there statues? And he says, well, you know, they're to honor people who did important things. And she says, she says to him, well, women must not do any important things because these are all of men. Like she happened to articulate her thought, but we have thoughts like that all the time growing up that we don't articulate and boys see it too. Like clearly boys are more important. So who's more important in the home? You know, once we are living with a part, a heterosexual opposite sex partner in our home, who do we know is more important? So, you know, in that way, I think it takes a lot of awareness of how sexist we all are, men and women both, because of growing up around all this, that we really have to interrogate in order then not to enact the sexism in our homes. So I think, you know, kind of my general take on life, you know, my position as a therapist, my feelings about this book, like, we really have to be aware of what informs our actions and our choices and our feelings before we're able to make conscious decisions in a way that kind of serves us better. Yeah, definitely. And along those lines, I think letting our kids see both partners doing all the things. Yeah. And this was something that occurred to me, like my husband and I have a division of labor that is always included. Like he always picks up the dog poop and he has ever since we've had a dog. And I'm like, I will do all the dishes, all the vacuuming, like all the things if I don't have to pick up the dog poop. But then it occurred to me, I was like, my child has never seen my husband vacuum. Yeah. And what is that? So maybe I do need to pick up the dog poop sometimes yeah. <laughs> because, because yeah. he needs to see that it's not just the mom who runs around vacuuming, making dinner every day. Yeah. That can't be the vision. I mean, my daughter said to me at one point, we live in New York, so we don't drive that much. But sometimes on the weekends we drive. And at one point, one of my daughters said to me, Mom, why does Daddy always drive? And I started driving after that. Yeah. I mean, I sometimes drove anyway. He just, you know, did more, right. which is not atypical, right, gender-wise. Yeah. But I made sure to start doing it for just that reason. Yeah. But I think the hard part is that even when you are raised in an egalitarian home, you are raised in a society that is not. So yeah. the influences are so vast and, like, out of our control. So I really do think knowing about the influences kind of in your own adulthood and being able, to, again, to make different choices if that's what you want is so important. Yeah. Yeah. And speaking outside influences, I was walking my son to summer camp this morning and he's like, mom, some people think boys shouldn't jump rope. And I was like, <laughs> I almost blew a gasket. I was like, what? Oh my God. I know. Boys and girls can do any sport or activity. Yeah, they I want. know. But it's like crazy the things, the little things that come up. I know. I'm like, all the time. Where did that come up? Who said that? Like, show me that person right now who said that boys can't jump rope. You hear that stuff from your kids all the time. I mean, I remember my kids saying things to me when they were little, you know, while they're trying to figure out the world. Mom, boys can't have long hair or wear skirts. And I would find myself so often starting sentences with them with, well, in our culture, those mm. things are rare, but that doesn't mean they can. It's just our culture. So I would like try to explain to them yeah. that these were not absolutes. They were just kind of the norms of the way our society currently was in the moment. But yeah, they're always one of the 
writers that I read, I think social psychologists referred to children as gender detectives. You know, they're always looking for clues about how they can fit in with their group because as social animals, that's kind of what we do. And the clues are all around them and they're always searching for them. And one writer said, you know, imagine, one academic writer said, imagine if in preschool classrooms, we started dividing kids up, not by gender, but by handedness. So all the righties were always together and all the lefties were always together. We would grow up thinking handedness was this really important and salient thing. Yeah. Okay, well, that's what we do with gender. Mm-hmm. Oh, so interesting. Yeah, you're totally right. So let's talk a little bit about mom guilt versus dad guilt. Because first of all, I think dad guilt doesn't, isn't doesn't exist. <laughs> right. Right. So, um, right. I put, so in, and actually, when I was sending you the interview flow, I just was recognizing that I just, I said, what are your thoughts on mom guilt? And then when I referenced dad guilt, I put it in quotes, like, because it's so not a thing. Like mom <laughs> guilt is not in quotes. This new <laughs> thing I just made up, dad right, guilt. Right. But so <laughs> what do you mom, think about it? Exactly. <laughs> so I believe that mom guilt is a social construct that indoctrinates women to believe that they should feel bad for prioritizing themselves over careers or family. And that's not to say that like women who feel mom guilt are not having legitimate guilty feelings, but I think it's because they've been indoctrinated and like brainwashed into this social construct. And there's no such social construct or indoctrination around this for men. So do you have any thoughts? I'm sure you have thoughts around that. Like, What are your thoughts around mom guilt and as it relates to men? Well, something that was pointed out to me in the course of my interviewing that was so interesting, a lawyer named Joan Williams was saying, so, you know, there's the gender wage gap, which we all know about. Mm -hmm. And there used to be a penalty for workers who overworked and overwork is 50 hours or more a week. So up until about the mid 90s, overwork meant you got paid less per hour. And then in certain professions, as the 90s went along, it kind of flipped and you were rewarded for overwork with bonuses and promotions, right? And now we're in this culture of overwork. But what this lawyer named Joan Williams pointed out to me was the wage penalty for overwork became a wage premium at exactly the time that mothers entered the workforce in the largest numbers. And she said to me, you know, I don't think it's any coincidence that just as women were achieving professionally, they were asked to compete along the one vector they couldn't. And that was time. So I thought that was really interesting. And I think the guilt plays in there because women don't make that time because of the standards of mothering that kind of are, are of parenting, right, for women parents that are applied. And it's much harder to make those decisions, though we could discuss whether overwork is a good idea in general. But there are so many things kind of forces in play that keep women in their place. And I suppose that's one of them. And, you know, writers who write about what has been called intensive mothering, which really defines kind of the standards of mothering today, where you're always supposed to put your children's needs first, no matter what, all the time, 24 hours a day, no matter what the cost, right? That's kind of like the water we're swimming in, in mothering today. And that too became kind of the norm in the mid nineties when mother's workforce participation peaked. Mm -hmm. So there's sort of like structures that fall into place that contribute to the guilt that you're talking about. And the expectation isn't there of fathers. You know, there was a blogger who I quote in the book who says, you know, when a dad shows up to mommy and me, we clap. Right. So the mom who doesn't take her kid to mommy and me is robbing her child of an important experience. And the dad who shows up gets applause. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, they're right. It all seems to serve to kind of perpetuate the subjugation of women to the benefit of men in these ways, though we could ask, like, what really are those benefits? 
and if you dig a little deeper, the benefits aren't necessarily benefits because there's a cost right. to your, your marriage and also your intimacy with your kids. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's such a great point. And that does come up for me at times when I'm, you know, thinking like, oh my gosh, like I have to do the pick and I don't do pickup every day, but there definitely early on in the school career, I was doing all the pickups and I was kind of annoyed by it. And now it's a little bit more shared because my work schedule has changed. But I also was like, as much as I'm resentful about this at times, like I get to have that walk home from school every day and yeah. there's a value yeah. there that like he's missing out. If, yeah, totally. If, you know, my I feel partner that way. Do it. Yeah. So it's, yeah, I mean, absolutely. there is, yeah, I totally get that while we get resentful, it's, we aren't always getting the short end of the stick. Well, right. I mean, I don't want to put it that way so concretely because I feel like until we all have the same choices, we haven't achieved parity. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. And it's kind of like, you know, and like, what is choice really? Because we're always making constrained choices within not only our possibilities, but also societal expectations. So it's really big boulder right, <laughs> to push right. uphill. Yeah, no, and that's a really great point because the, like you say, having it be a choice versus having it be not, a, you know, having something that is not a choice is yeah. definitely a different, um, yeah. a different scenario. Yeah. And, you know, and I, I don't want to come from, from too much of a place of privilege around that at all. Okay. So this has been really helpful, really good. Anything like any parting words or wisdom that you want to share for shameless moms around building equity, making partnerships more equitable? Yeah. I, yeah. I think you have to be, I love the idea of being shameless because I think you have to be shameless in tackling this problem in your relationship if indeed it is a problem for you. Yes. And it can be so easy, so much easier in some way to swallow your anger and tell yourself you should just be grateful that you have a partner who participates at all and et cetera, et cetera. And I think that, you know, from the women that I interviewed and from the social science research that I've read, that leads nowhere good. And we have a really uncomfortable relationship with anger in society in general, mm. but especially with female anger. Yeah. And I think to really own it and to use it in adaptive ways for your own good and for the benefit of your kids and your relationship as well, I think you really do have to be shameless because you have to really own this thing that is so derided, which is anger, but it's anger around justice and I am not a second class citizen in my own home right to be able to like to own that and really get your partner to join you in the fight for equality in the home I think is something that I would really encourage women to be shameless about I love that and I love the idea of using anger in adaptive ways I'm totally <laughs> quoting it's a, that it's such a force for good yes. if we know how to if yes. we know how to use it totally totally rather than just damaging our own mental health <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah our, right our own mental health self-esteem feelings yeah. about our relationship for sure right right in what ways are you currently showing up as a shameless mom oh gosh well I think in talking about this really publicly you know I was really invested when I was writing the book and not making the fights that my husband and I had sound cutesy. Mm. You know, I feel like there's so much writing by people maybe about like fights, but then they resolve in this cutesy way or it's all nice and good. And, you know, I think especially given like all the Instagram moms and things like that, and I don't mean, I mean them no disrespect, but there's so much like making family life really precious all the time. And it's not, it's dirty and it's ugly. And, you know, we get lice and the fights <laughs> that my husband and I had around this stuff were not pretty. So 
I think just talking about this publicly from a personal perspective and not just a systems perspective, because there are lots of books about all the flaws in our system that need to be corrected in order for there to be, you know, work-life balance and people having more livable situations. And that's true. Like there's all that stuff certainly needs to change, but looking at the personal is so important. And so I feel like talking about this in such an open way was kind of shameless. And I'm glad I did it, even though sometimes it feels like super revealing in ways that are a little uncomfortable. Yes. Well, I can tell you, we're grateful that you're doing it. Like it takes people opening up these conversations for the rest of us to see where we can find our power in these places. So I'm so grateful for your work and excited about your book. And so tell people where they can connect with you, where they can find all the rage and all those good things. They can find all the rage wherever books are sold, certainly online, indie bookstore, indie bound, Amazon, you know, wherever you might buy a book, any bookstore. And then people can connect with me on Twitter. I'm not a huge social media person, but at Darcy underscore Lockman, if anyone wants to reach out about the book, I like hearing from people about it. So I'm happy to hear from anyone that way. Awesome. I will have that all linked up in the show notes over on our website. Darcy, this has been awesome. Thank you for being here. I know this conversation is going to inspire some of our mamas to start making some changes that are going to give them more power and really shift the dynamics in the relationship to a better, more positive place. So I can't thank you enough for being here today. Oh, I hope that it does. And thank you so much for having me on, Sarah. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you so much for joining me in the Shameless Mom Academy today. I really, really appreciate you being here and I hope you learned something new. As always, this conversation will be continued over in our free private Facebook group. You can join that group by going to shamelessmom.com forward slash Facebook to connect with other shameless moms just like you. Additionally, if this is your first time listening to the show, know that we are here every Monday and Wednesday with a brand new episode. So make sure you subscribe, go to whatever podcast app you use and subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. You can do that directly if you go to shamelessmom.com forward slash review that will put you in Apple Podcasts where you can click on the subscribe button and you can also leave a review. If you scroll down a little bit, you can leave a five-star review. You can write a few sentences letting me know what you thought about the show. If you let me know how the show has impacted you in becoming a more shameless mom, you might be nominated to be Shameless Mom of the Week. Also, please share this episode. My goal is to help more mamas be more shameless every damn day. So please do share this episode. You can take a screenshot of the episode on your phone and then share it out on social media tag me at the Shameless Mom Academy on Facebook or Instagram. I'm quick to reply and eager to send you Facebook love and love to be connected to all of you. So again, thank you for being here. I can't wait to be back here again with you in just a couple days. And until then, no matter what you do today, make sure you do it shamelessly. Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. (laughs) Well, you're Amy more of a we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? 
And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you listen to podcasts.